Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. Today is a very special episode. My guest is my editor, Whitney Frick, though our roles today are reversed. I'm in the hot seat as we talk about the making of On Our Best Behavior. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the Thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. If I remember correctly, like, I think you ran as fast as you could to the thing that you're more comfortable with, which is other people's research, other people's ideas, showing the connection between historical ideas and current, you know, thought leaders and the way they're operating. And so what I felt was that you, Elise, was missing. And I I think what I really wanted you to do, and this is what I meant by like, show us your journey through these things, is I needed you, and and you got there, to, to filter and to sort of act as guide for the reader, showing us what you were realizing as you were bringing and making these connections and and sort of synthesizing all of these other thought leaders and, you know, expert work, because that's, that's the journey we need to be on as readers. That voice, that's my editor, Whitney Frick. And she joins me today for a very special episode of Pulling the Thread on the eve of On Our Best Behaviors publication, coming next week on May 23rd. Many of you have been with me as I've written this book, and by osmosis, you probably have some sense of the process. But it felt important to me to celebrate OOBB, as we call it, to bring you all the way inside with the person who knows the text almost as well as me. Writing a book is really hard. It's also incredibly co-creative. And as someone who has co-written or ghost-written 12 books, I'm usually the co-creator, holding the structure for the authors while they revisit their lives and mine it for story. In this case, though, it was Wit who helped me, holding the potential of the book as a guiding light for the process. She took me by the hand, bringing me ever closer to myself as I worked through drafts. We both worked really hard on this book, really hard, distilling, refining, and interrogating the material until we knew the path was so well-trod, readers would be able to easily follow the book's unfolding and understand exactly what I was trying to say. To say that I'm pleased with how On Our Best Behavior came out is an understatement. I'm thrilled, which is not something that's easy for me to say. I believe the book is the best I could write it, and I'm so grateful to Wit for getting me there. As we explore in today's conversation, 
I had a very powerful battle with resistance, and I'm so happy I pushed through. If you haven't yet ordered your copy, On Our Best Behavior is available wherever you get your books, starting on May 23rd. It's available in the U.S., Canada, U.K., and Australia as of May 30th, with more countries to come. All right, let's get to our conversation. I wonder how mentally entrained we've been for three years and how many times we're actually thinking about the same thing. I I bet a lot, actually. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I think what you've written, your your book has sort of wormed its way into my brain. And, you know, and now I think I see so much of what you point out in my experience and in the world. So then I assume you're seeing the same things. So yeah. Well, that's as as intended, Wit. I wanted to write an infectious book because, as you know, as we know, as we've talked about a lot, culture is contagious and we pass it along. And so the antidote in its own way is also contagious, hopefully. I think also one of the things that's been really fun for me as we've been working together is I've gotten to see actually just sort of how similar we are and in the way we were raised and in the way our families are sort of structured. I don't have a brother, but I have a sister and we have kids who are, that are the same age. So I think it's been really, it's, I feel in this three year journey with you, I, I, know. I found an author and a friend. So. Oh, wit. I'm going to cry. And we're from the same part of the country. That's right. I'm a Colorado girl. Although I did not grow up with like horses. I mean, I was I know. You know, like in Denver. So it's, yes, but you grew up ski adjacent. We know that's how right. that worked out for you. That's right. But that's, it's interesting. I was talking to Austin Channing Brown earlier this morning and we were talking about goodness and I was curious about how it showed up for her and mm. We didn't do sort of like a step-by-step overlap of our lives, but it was interesting how it was also the same for her. And so my hope is that by doing a personal excavation of this idea or this concept of goodness and how it's corralled my life, that the personal becomes universal and that even if people don't completely identify with everything that I've written about and experienced that they've more or less see themselves. And my feeling is that it might happen. I mean, it's so interesting to me because just in, even in the early reads that we've, that we've seen from, from readers and, and, you know, people who are reviewing it on Goodreads or colleagues of mine within the Random House hallways, it's been really fascinating because we all have different backgrounds and we come from different places. And actually even within random house, there were sort of different generations who have been reading this. Like, you know, there's somebody who works on the marketing team who's like Gen Z and my deputy publisher, who's sort of Gen X. And like, there's still this ingrained kind of good girl mentality that we, we all seem to be carrying and it expresses itself in different ways for sure. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that sort of the working on this book with you has really got me thinking is like, how can I interrupt the cycle when it comes to my daughter? And even something like last night, we had her parent teacher conference yesterday. And I really had to, had to stop myself from saying, 
oh, the teachers love having you in the classroom. They say you're really good at following directions. They think you're really helpful, even though I was sort of personally very happy that the teacher said those things about her. Like, I don't, I, because of what your book has illuminated for me, I don't want those to be the things that she thinks I'm valuing from her parent-teacher conference. Yeah. What's really interesting about that, though, too, is that when we talk about this book and we talk about these voices in our head and this cultural construct of the sins and this quest for goodness that so many, all women, I think, in some ways are programmed for, whether all women pursue this or not is a question, but I think you have to be almost a renegade, a revolutionary not to. But in talking about this, even this morning with Austin, we were both distinguishing, thinking, oh, this is a familial edict, right? This is our parents requiring a certain performance of goodness from us. And I think that that's where a lot of us stop. I had a performative childhood. I was incredibly high achieving, yada, 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 et cetera. And then when I actually have gotten closer to that and examining it, I'm like, that's funny because my parents actually sent me to a hippie alternative school that had no grades and no textbooks. In so many ways, they tried to shield me from this instinct in myself. My mm-hmm. parents, as as I write about in, in Pride, do not tell me that I am all that. If anything, it's the opposite, and they ignore any success I've had in my life and have anxiety about it. And yet... I don't know what I'm trying to prove to them. It's so beyond familial. It's so beyond you enforcing this behavior in your daughter. This is so cultural. Right. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's as you point out in the book, it's very much the air we breathe. I, I, so, mm-hmm. I, so I want to turn, turn, this, turn the, this, the table a little bit and ask you, you know, I mean, I think I know the answer, but like, where did this start for you? And, and when you started thinking about this conditioning, where did it first show up for you in your life? I mean, with so young, so with such an insistence on achieving in every sphere of my life and being the best, being good, excelling, and an, an incredible internal drive, which of course was validated by society, but... I don't know that it was necessarily me. I've spent a lot of time, even in this post, sort of as the book is done, thinking about it even more and, you know, really trying to understand the source of this drive in me because it was never satisfying. It's never, it's never sort of like, oh, I'm a mathlete. Let me celebrate myself. Oh, I'm a really good skier. Like there was still so much anxiety and shame wrapped up in it. And then, you know, I grow up, I I pursue my life, I sort of forge a career, I achieve, 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 I get married, I have two children. And as you know, sort of it didn't end for me, but it culminated for me in an anxiety disorder. That started really when I started my career in my 20s of chronic hyperventilation. And I'd sort of hit a wall in my 40th year, 39th year, whenever that was, of feeling sort of like, how am I here? How am I for a month 
in a period of chronic hyperventilation, feeling like I'm going to die, exhausted, presenting to the world like I'm sleepy, sedate, and extremely calm, while inside I actually can't take a deep breath. And how have I, after all of this efforting, all of this proving myself, how am I more swamped in these feelings of inadequacy and not good enoughness and I'll never feel safe, I'll never feel secure, I'll never feel lovable. How am I here? Because I think I'd spent my whole life thinking that I could, if I just kept running, if I kept going towards this, in this direction, I would reach a point where I could feel safe and feel good. And if anything, the farther that I drove into that journey, the the less good I felt. And that was really a a breaking point, a a recognition that I had to turn and face this rather than try to outrun it. And I had to know what it what it was. As you know from editing me, I like to use the word it and this. <laughs> you, do. you do. You do. That's true. Well, it's fine. I mean, listening to you talk, I I, I relate and identify and I you know, it's I, I keep thinking about that meme. Like, have you seen that meme where it's like adulthood is just saying next week will be better every week? Yes. Yes. And I think <laughs> I think maybe you hit the point where you were like, I don't wanna just say next week it'll be better. And like I I mean, I constantly you know, my family is always rolling their eyes at me because I'm like Okay, but once I get this edit done, or once mm-hmm. I get this, but there's always more. Like it doesn't. There's no, yes. you know. And I rem- as a mom, you're like, oh, once they're through toddlerhood, okay, but then then there's just more. <laughs> like so, I think, I think you got to a place where you're like, I want to look at why living feels like this, mm-hmm. and and so I mean, so, you know, as you and I debated at length. The first chapter of this book is really a history. So <laughs> I will be vindicated. For people who are are listening, we had a lot of conversations about whether to keep this chapter or not. That's and it has a disclaimer that you can skip it. That's but right. I hope you don't. <laughs> or you can skip it and go back once you've yeah. read your way in. But I, I mean, I think it would be good at least like for, you know, you are – a seeker, an investigator, a questioner, you know, we, at, at the office, we always say like, oh, Elise is like the brainy best friend that you call to ask, you know, like, well, what do you think? Where did this come from? So it's like Siri or Elise. So I think, I mean, I think it would be interesting to hear. So you, you know, you hit this place where you were like, I, I can't, I can't keep living this way. And I can't constantly be seeking, pursuing the, the brass ring I'll never catch. Mm-hmm. How did that lead you yeah. to this investigation? Like, what did you discover? Yeah. And what's interesting, too, is that you think about this period of overwhelm, and I think our cultural instinct is to say, like, oh, you need some self-care or meditate or, you know. And I had been trying that. It was not a, a <laughs> right. question it wasn't of... Like you weren't you weren't doing yes. those things. Yes. Yet. It's not like I didn't have access to all of that. And it's not like I wasn't pursuing relief in with the tool set that was available to me, which was extensive. So to me, it was also sort of like pushing past a lot of that programming 
which I think is very insidious for women of, you know, oh, it's just a spa, take a spa day, take some time for yourself. You know, that to me was not an antidote. That wasn't, it was not helping. It wasn't enough. So I knew that there was something much deeper, that that would be, you know, interventions like that were band-aids, sure, nice, but band-aids to something that was in me in a much, much deeper way. And so it took me a long time to figure out what, quote, unquote, it even was. And so much of this book has been a process of getting closer to the itness or the this, you know, and I think it's funny. I have that tendency. It's it's a joke, but it's not a joke to sort of, it's. and you were great at pushing me to define the it, define the this. What is this that you're talking about? And that's really, that's really what I had to push toward. What is this sort of boogeyman? I had to give it a shape that was sitting on me and creating the sensation of breathlessness and not enoughness. And I I had to really identify it so I could get my arms around it. And I recognized sort of the ways that it showed up in my life, but it wasn't immediately apparent to me what its shape was. And I think that so often our instinct is to be like, it's patriarchy, it's the men, it's capitalism, it's, it's these sort of systems. But... I couldn't find that in the external structure in my own personal life. So mm-hmm. I could sense like I was like, I've only kind of worked for a lot of men I love. My husband is a really progressive feminist guy. My parents are not patriarchal at all. I was struggling, you know, in this binary culture that we live in to like find the person to blame. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't there. And so... That was one of the sources of the investigation of, okay, I know it has something to do with that, but it's not, this is in me, this lives in me, this is older than any sort of existing structure, but it lives in me and it seems to live in my friends. And I really wanted to understand too, why in 2016, for example, or in all the social science that continues to pour forth women are as responsible for this, as upholding this as, as men, this idea of holding women to a different standard, of being really hard on women, et cetera. Because I recognized it was sort of like that as a force, that, that force of goodness. So it was a big question that had no definition in my head. And then I really started, as you know, with tapping into this idea of envy and... I had a conversation with Lori Gottlieb, and this was a small moment, and maybe you should talk to someone, but where she says that she tells her clients to pay attention to their envy because it shows them what they want. And that really hit me wit because I recognized that I had never examined that in my own life. And in a conversation with her, we talked about it at length. And I, you know, I was like, well, how does this show up? Is this, is this what, what that sort of like, I don't like her? Is that what that is? And she was like, yes. And I asked her if it was gendered and she said she didn't know, but that in her experience, women are much less comfortable with feelings that we find unacceptable. And 
that, you know, I read that and I thought about it a lot as sort of this, like, when we feel something that we're ashamed of, before we even let the feeling fully birth or come up, we just shove it down. We shove it down. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of women listening will relate to that. It's just too painful to even examine it and feel it. It's t It makes us feel bad. So I started with that thought and I was like, is this envy? Is this like, is that what's driving sort of the reason that in 2016, 2017, 2018, so on and so forth, we're still sort of where we're at socially. And, and then I had a conversation with Glennon about this very concept of envy. And she said, well, the thing about envy and women and their wanting is we don't even know what we want because we've been conditioned not to have any wants at all. And that really hit. And so as I kept thinking about this idea of goodness, women, wanting, I was like, maybe this is about envy. Like maybe this is, this is what I'm dealing with or contending with. And then I, but that didn't feel complete either. And so of course, being like the word nerd that I am, I was like, what is envy and where does it come from? And that's when I realized it was on the list of seven deadly sins, which I had to remind myself of because I didn't grow up in any sort of religion. And as I looked at that list, my heart sank because to me, it read as a punch card in my life, at least for every single thing that I police myself about and mm -hmm. all the ways that I try to express my goodness. And I don't know, it's funny, as you know, so many times the things that are most obvious are also the most invisible. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was it, where I was like, oh, I understand. I, I see it. I see the system. I see how it's showing up in our lives. And I, now I need to understand where it started and where it came from. I guess you asked me about the history chapter, and that was my long answer of like, why? No, but it's fine. I mean, as you know, we we debated like, does envy go first? Does it go later? And I personally, the light bulb moment in reading your work was was, or certainly the thing that that envy did not like resonate with me first, you know. Yeah. And and maybe, and I think I've told you, like maybe that's because like. I spend a lot of time like reading in in th this world and I have had the privilege of working with Lennon and she's been expressing some of these ideas and I love Lori Gottlieb's book and so this was sort of in my air that like actually envy can kind of point you in the direction of the things you want so I think I had been maybe conditioned to kind of lean into envy and be like oh like when I feel envious or when I have that instinct to kind of like roll my eyes at an, another woman who's who's achieving something or who's expressed an ambition really what that means is like i kind of want that for myself and like i can try to pursue that mm -hmm. for me elise you know what what you this idea of like oh the seven deadly sins or this code that we follow I was also not raised in a religious family like that. That didn't sort of ring true for me in exactly the way that you said, like, I can sense that there's a set of rules that I'm adhering to. I'm obeying, maybe even without 
awareness of it, enforcing them for my daughter, enforcing them for my colleagues. I, ex I sort of expect the women in my life to follow those same rules, but I don't know where they come from and I can't really articulate what those rules are. In reading your book, what became so clear to me is that the voice in my head that like tells me and like this, I'm going to describe this voice and I know I am not alone in having this voice because I know you have this voice in your head. And I now know having talked about your book with so many of my colleagues, they also have this voice, but like the voice in my head that tells me like, set your alarm and get in a workout early in the morning before you start your day, because that, you know, you got to like do all the things. Mm -hmm. That voice or the voice that tell that says like, oh, I've been so bad today when I leave my son's birthday party having eaten cake and pizza or like and I equate that to being bad or like the voice that like when when somebody compliments me and says like that was really, you know, I, I like deflect. Or I'm like, oh, we just got really lucky or it wasn't me. It was the team, you know, that that sort of deflection. At, like so those things are like a fear of sloth of wanting to not be gluttonous and like not appear gluttonous in any way or the deflection is like a fear of pride and once you kind of pointed out like look like that voice in your head follows these seven eight we can talk about that categories it was like seeing the matrix like i couldn't unsee those things mm -hmm. and that has been I mean, even like, I mean, yeah, yeah. So it, it's like once you see it, you can't un you can't un unsee what what is existing in our culture, and then you see it in other women, and you see it in in yeah. the expectations we have around how people behave. I mean, even in like, I've noticed that I believe an email should be phrased in a certain way so as not to appear like too greedy or too needy. Or, you know, and like, why am I policing that? Just ask for what you want in the email, you know? Yeah. Or too angry or right. too straightforward. I think women, I think it's exactly what you said. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And you mentioned that I, I agree with you. I think my gift is synthesizing. And so a lot of the book, I think, will resonate in part because it's built on the shoulders of so many incredible thinkers of and a lot of other women's work in these very specific categories. And so I think we're used to seeing this sort of in the context of gluttony, certainly, and the body positivity movement and the way that we're reevaluating how we talk to ourselves about our bodies. We're used to seeing it, you know, in Rebecca Traister's Good and Mad or Soraya Chamali's rage becomes her, et cetera. There are all these sort of incredible, primarily not pieces of nonfiction in all of these different categories, talking about sort of women and achievement and ambition and the way that we're punished for the expression of that. Or you have Sadie Doyle's train wreck, et cetera. There's, there's, you'll, they're all in the bibliography. <laughs> but what I think what I wanted to do, and I think that this is, is actually pull them together into a system. This is a system of goodness. Of You could call it internalized patriarchy, internalized misogyny. I know those words are hard for people, 
but really like, oh, these are all connected. We are not dealing individually. These all collide and they're closely connected. I mean, even thinking about you deflecting praise, which is absolutely my intention. I have ghostwritten 12 books. I like being behind other people. Even this, you know, making you do this podcast with me and as you know, chafing at the bit at you turning the tables because I want to say like, well, this is a co-creative book. And like, I want to shove you out there first with, it's just my instinct Mm -hmm. and it's strong. And I'm not unusual as a woman in part because (sighs) pride and envy are incredibly closely connected. And when I've spoken about this book and these concepts with women They say specifically, I'm scared to be celebrated. I'm scared to be seen. I'm scared to win an award as a doctor, as a speaker, et cetera. I don't want to go out there because I recognize I'm going to trigger other women's envy and they're going to come for me. I'll be excluded. I'll be left out. I'll be isolated, et cetera. So the the whole thing starts to sort of collide and crash together, but in a good way, because I think that hopefully this is by making the system visible and giving it shape and creating a framework that we can start interrupting the cycle with each other Mm -hmm. and recognizing it in ourselves, stopping ourselves in an email as we're trying to downplay or override our confidence with an expression of our competence, which I think is a strong instinct in women, not because we're not confident, but because we recognize it will be police in us if it's expressed. So we are, you know, adding all of that language. I just wanted to say, I'm sorry, I'm sure you've already thought of this. I'm sorry to you know, just add another point here that I'm sure you've thought about and have probably already addressed and or whatever it is. It goes on all the caveating. I think any any woman is familiar with it. This extreme self-consciousness to make ourselves more palatable, to exist, to live within the parameters of like what's a, what is comfortable, obedient, pleasing, compliant behavior. I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to Framebridge to have them framed right. I've been having Framebridge frame all my family photos for years, 
You can upload digital prints and they do a beautiful and speedy job making them the perfect place for holiday gifts as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do and they confirm this for me. But FrameBridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame. Whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus FrameBridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why FrameBridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local FrameBridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. I think one of the big revelations for me in reading the book is that you show how it's a system and, you know, this, this, what I keep saying, this voice in my head, this, this, like the rule obeyer in me after reading your book, I see that that is not me. It Mm -hmm. is a cultural, culturally imposed foreign thing that is living in me and I can be the decider. Like I can, I can choose to listen. I can choose to override it. I can choose to ignore it. And that feels empowering to even just realize like, Oh, it's not me. It's, it's something that's been put in me and I can choose if I want to obey it. Yes. Yes. And what I think is really important is that this the, the editor in you, the inner critic, the voice in your head is very similar. It comes from the same source or is of the same source as the one in me and in the one and what all women know. And what what the reason that these modes of behavior are perpetuated throughout time is that we continually enforce this in ourselves and in each other. And so part of doing it differently is to recognize it, diagnose it, interrupt it, and then support each other as we pull this these roots out of ourselves, as we silence these voices, change the channel, tune to a different frequency, choose your metaphor. You know I'm going to add five or six. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, okay, okay. Now now you've given me an in to talk about. I mean, like, so talk, talk about the process of writing this book. It's been, aside from me saying, like, choose one metaphor, at least, like, you have to define it. You can't just say it or that, like, or this. You got it? Tell the reader what we mean. Uh, no, so, it's sad. Is before it ever got to you, my brother went through and circled every single this and the it, and some still made it to you. Anyway, go ahead. Wait, do you know what else is sad? And this just shows that I have not fully been deprogrammed with by working on your book, is that I... So, so, I mean, I, I, I assume people who listen to your podcast regularly know that your brother is a very, very wonderful book editor and like hugely respected in the industry. And I admire him so much. So I edited your book 
thinking, I really hope Ben is impressed by me. Like, what, why <laughs> can't I just like want you to be impressed by me? I mean, this is where it's like, okay, I gotta, you know, be good. I do work hard. So it's, 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 it's so perfect. Well, Ben was very <laughs> impressed by you. In fact, yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about the writing process. But but to close the loop on Ben, he probably read it once or twice before I sent it to you. And he kept cautioning me, you know, it needs to be really close. It needs to be at the 80-yard line, which it was not, by the time it gets to wit. Because you have one – you'll get one – attentive turn and that's it and so you cannot tire her out you cannot wear her out there's just sort of a limit to her willingness or ability to work on this book and oh, but he did not fully know how afraid of he, appearing slothful I am I am I know he ha- he did not know and so you blew his mind in terms of your willingness to work on this with me and he was very impressed. I will speak for him. He was really, I think, maybe honestly a little shamed that he does not – I don't think he goes to nearly those lengths for for his writers. No, um, he does. He does. Okay. He's so, a great so editor. What, but what did yeah. you – like? Okay. About that process. So in some ways, as we were laughing, it's funny as you, you there's some things again that are so obvious, and then only when you work on a project like this. And and as a ghostwriter, when I work with people, I'm always it's a deeply therapeutic person, and I have been on these rides with people who don't really know exactly what they're getting into. But as you begin this process of excavating your life, shit happens. So like I knew that a little bit going in. I have been not participant to, but like people's relationships falling apart through the book writing process, et cetera. Like all this stuff comes up and Mm -hmm. it needs to be dealt with. So I was kind of prepared to do this with myself. But when I wrote the proposal and was so happy that you emerged victorious and that I was working with you because I knew that I can spin out in complexity and nuance. I knew you would ground me and that you would pull it down from me in a way that I knew I I really, really needed. So we'll get to that part sort of when we get to it. But when I started the process of writing this, I didn't really know how much of myself would be in it. And I thought I knew there would be a lot of cultural criticism, a lot of research, a lot of synthesizing of other people's work. And I didn't know how much of myself to bring into it. And so I didn't really know how therapeutic it would be or how hard it would be to really evaluate my own relationship to these sense. I thought I could stay in this slightly clinical, slightly abstract space. And as I started writing, I recognized like how much of my own stuff I needed to work through. And a lot of this is in the book, not all of it, only because of nobody wants to read a massive book, but I had to process it as I, as I wrote, as I wrote this book. And so the process, the drafting in some ways was very fast. It took me about a year, year and a half in part because I had in many ways been working on this book my whole life. It was funny. It wasn't even like an immediate 
I don't even know where we were in the process when I was like, oh my God, my college thesis, both of my college thesis, theses was about, they were both about this. My art thesis was about women, fairy tale and archetypes. Okay. Remember when you wanted the beginning to be about Snow White? Yes. I wanted, I had, I did 18, (laughs) you guys, 18 introductions, 18, 18. So yeah, no, my college thesis was John Milton and Andrew Marvell and the loss of innocence in the Garden of Eden. So wild, but like it never occurred to me that I was coming back to these themes. So it took me about a year and a half to draft it. And I had a couple of friends who are novelists read, my brother edited, my mom, and I delivered it to you. Because I, in my mind, I was like, I'm going to hit the original targeted deadline, even though I'd never missed a deadline. This is part of my own experience, too. And I gave it to you, and you came back to me and said, I need you to – essentially, it was like – you were like, this is too much work for the reader. You – it's like a junk drawer a little bit, like of good treasure, but like it's too much work. You have to create, a, you need to bring people through a journey. You need a, like not a, you kind of, you were like, you need a formula. You need, I, these, all of these components are missing. And in that moment, I was like, we'll talk about my resistance because that's important. But I also recognize that you were right, that I had sort of jumped right past all the cultural proof of these sins and I was missing sort of like all the easy layups (laughs) for for readers. If I remember correctly, like I think you ran as fast as you could to the thing that you're more comfortable with, which is other people's research, other people's ideas, showing the connection between historical ideas and current, you know, thought leaders and the way they're operating. And so what I felt was that you, Elise, was missing. And I I think what I really wanted you to do, and this is what I meant by like, show us your journey through these things, is I needed you and and you got there to to filter and to sort of Mm -hmm. act as guide for the reader showing us what you were realizing as you were bringing and making these connections and, and sort of synthesizing all of these other thought leaders and, you know, expert work, because that's, that's the journey we need to be on as readers. Yes. And I think, I mean, let's talk about resistance. Cause I think you didn't, I don't think you wanted to put yourself in there as much as I as I wanted to push you to. And I, and I think you got there. So that has to have been a process for you. What was yes. that? I mean, a big process. And, and I want to, we're going to put this idea of sort of other people's scholarship in a parking lot, because this was a big part of it for me. Yeah. I mean, I remember shortly after, cause essentially you were like, I can't, I'm not going to line edit. I'm not going to like edit this until I want you to like restructure it and make sure you are, you are bringing me through a, uh, process. Like you have got to hold my hand and bring me through all of this material. And I had dinner <laughs> with my friend Taylor, who's a screenwriter, one, one of my oldest friends, a really good guy friend who is viciously honest with me. I don't know. Vicious isn't the right word because it's very loving. But he has always told me the truth and made me say the truth too. And I had dinner with him. Just It wasn't intent because of this reason. And 
he asked me how the book was going and I was like, oh, I have to like, I'm so upset. I feel like it's wrong. It's going to like, you know, my book's not going to, it doesn't, it's not a formula. And he was like, I haven't read a word and your editor is right. And he was like, you are in, you are experiencing resistance. You're in the belly of the beast. You are coming, you're driving, following me home. I'm giving you, his name Stephen Pressfield. I'm giving you do the work. You are in the belly of the beast and you are going to thrash here until you break through. And it was a really, I think anyone who has experienced this and maybe didn't know what it was called, this is that moment of sort of where you push to the next, you push any work, any creative work to the next level. And there is that moment of like, this is good enough. I'm tired. You know, part of it is I'd been living it for probably two years. And I was like, I'm tired. I know that I am a good writer. I know that this is like good, good, pretty good. Like there is just that moment where you're like being called or being pushed to elevate it. And I thrashed. I cried. I like pulled a blanket over my head for a couple of days. It was really hard. And and then I came out and then I sort of knew, took a certain amount of time, honestly, because also my instinct, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this, is to rush to work, particularly when things are uncomfortable for me. I'm like, I'll just get to it. I'm just going to start. And Ben also is like, stop, 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 stop. Slow down. Slow down. Like you are moving too quickly into the next iteration of this book. And so I had to like sit with my resistance, even though all I wanted to do was make it go away. And and then there was sort of an opening, honestly, where I was like, oh, I see. I understand. I know exactly how to do this. And I could go back into the draft sort of mercilessly. And my friend Ramon Alam was like, had very much been there before. He was like, you need to print this thing out. You need to cut it up. You need to identify and label sections and thoughts. And then you're going to get down on the ground and you're going to start rearranging and like the gaps will be clear. And that's what I did. I like did a huge art project in my living room of physically moving parts of the book around. And that's when I was like, oh my God, there are these major things. Because as you know as well, I can skip. I'm fast. Like I will just – I think people are with me and I've left out – I've moved very quickly in the progression of my thoughts. And so it was very – an excellent way for me to say, oh, I realize this makes sense to me and that 80% of people are going to be like, what the – where – what? How did you make that sort of cognitive leap? I'm not mm-hmm. bringing people with me. So that was that stage. And so I restructured, added like some significant architecture, including a lot of the a lot of the history. I had written the history. So I wrote the history, then we pulled it out of each chapter and put it into its own chapter. And then I needed to go a tiny bit back to it in some chapters to remind people of where some of these ideas came from. And then we got into the editing which was really where I had to confront my desire to hide behind everyone else's thoughts. And, 
you know, you were quick to point out, like, it's okay. Some of these are your ideas. You don't need to go searching for someone who had the same idea 10 years ago so that you can cite and reference them. <laughs> I think there was a moment where I said to you, like, can you please just put your books away? Like, just write it. Just go write. Right. Don't. You you wanted to, like, do hours of research to then, you know. Say what I already knew. Yeah. And... Yeah, and then a big part of it, people will know. It's funny when my friend, when Sarah read the book, an early sort of PDF, and it was on her Kindle, and she finished it. And then we went for a walk, and she was like, I'm so sad. I thought I had 20% of the book left to go. And then suddenly it was over because that's how many endnotes I have. I have 25,000 endnotes. Now I'm worried. Now I'm like, oh, we better go look at the end and make sure it like feels satisfying. No, it was totally satisfying. She was tracking her progress and she thought that she had like a lot more time with the book and then it was over because, yeah, 25,000 word endnotes and the book is about 100,000 words. And because like I had to sort of move stuff into the back of the book. And I'm sure people who are listening can relate to that too. It's really like finding the line between a good experience for a reader and wanting to honor everyone who is part of this was a a harder line. You you did a great job of making me both clarifying clarify my thinking and also move things to the back. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. I want to go back to actually, I feel like, something in the story you just told about that period of resistance feels so illustrative to me of like the way these sins are working in our lives. So, so Mm -hmm. I just want to unpack it for a minute because it's interesting. Like you, your instinct in that period, in that moment of discomfort and like, ugh, like I have Mm -hmm. to do this thing. I don't want to do this thing. I'm tired. Your instinct then was to like, I'm going to do it as fast as I possibly can. Like, I'm just going to get this thing done. And I think that is the behavior that we're talking about that is ingrained in us, particularly as women, where we're like the answer to whatever this discomfort or this problem is, is like, do, do, do. I'm going to just do it. I'm going to deliver it. I'm going to get it done. And I think your brother's advice to like, no, no, sit. And just don't go so fast. Give it a minute. Marinate in this so that you can see more clearly what's going to come. You talk about in the book, Elise, how like by 
rushing, by trying to constantly do, by by like putting more items on our to-do list and then just trying to check check them off, which like nobody loves a to-do list more than I do. We we deny ourselves full opportunity for like creative experience. And I I know you tell the story in the book of like Lynn Manuel Miranda thought up Hamilton while he was on vacation. And like, mm-hmm. if you don't give yourself the pause, the, the, the rest, the, the, if you don't marinate in the discomfort of the creative process and you try to just turn it into something that you can just get done, you miss it. Yes. And I think I wanted to like go back to that to sort of show how once you see these ideas at play in your own life, you can see how, how the instinct to, to, you know, not appear slothful to just do denies full creative expression or the opportunity for like surprise. So even the process of writing the book, I think ended up expressing so much of of the lessons that are in it. No, it's so true. And I'd never, I'd never thought about that, but this, the book more or less is about the psychology of women and everything that we perceive as bad, that we suppress or stuff or hold in our shadow. And as we actually allow, you know, we were talking about in the context of envy, or this is a good example of of, of sloth, of this feeling like, I don't know what to do, so I'll do something. Or we definitely experience it with anger, which is very difficult for a lot of women to access and feel. Our instinct is to paper it over, move on, get busy throughout our emotional lives because it's really scary and disorienting and unmooring to let these quote unquote bad feelings come up. But they are such a gift. They're full of information and and as you said, creative possibility, really, if we stop spending all of this energy not letting holding them down. And in some ways, you know, not only does this potentially inhibit us from the full expression of our gifts, but in many ways, I think it makes us physically ill. But yeah, that's it. And every single sin, sloth, pride, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, anger, there is an immersion of an, of an emotion that women have been coded to suppress, deny, repress, ignore, that is such an essential human instinct, so important, so animating, so restoring. And for many of us, it is going to be a period of feeling unstable and disoriented and unmoored and slightly chaotic as we start to actually let these things come up. But I can say as having a a couple of years head start on this work, although I think that the work will greatly speed up the more we experience it together, there is a lot more freedom on the other side, even in, and there's a lot more like self-love and tenderness that I feel towards myself as I experience as I actually am stopping to experience everything that's been alive in me, but not acknowledged Mm -hmm. for 43 years. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, we talked about like my urging you to put yourself into this a little bit more and to use your own experience as a guide. And I think that was sort of a two part request. And part one was like, as a reader, we just want to hear, feel like you're taking our hand through this. But, but the other part of that request is like, I, I really believe that like, you're the only person who could have written this book. Mm. So, so what about this? felt so sort of on the surface personal to you and like why is this the book that you stepped out of ghostwriting to really come forward to write yeah I mean it's interesting Jen Joel who's my agent will tell you and she's been my agent since I was a baby since I was you know 24 or something and I started ghostwriting and she really took me on as a favor to my brother and and Peter because they all went to college together. You know, at a certain point, I had done probably at that point 10 books. And she was like, okay, <laughs> we had breakfast. And she was like, "All we can paper these deals for you. Like, what are you doing, though? What are you doing, Elise? Like, why, why are you choosing this? And when are you going to... Jen is like, hysterically like the least mystical and least spiritual person I know and which makes her the perfect agent for me and my wackadoodle theories but it was a sort of it was in some ways a spiritual conversation of when are you going to step into who you are and into your into your fate like what what are you doing and it was a it was right after Peter died it was it was a kind of the shaking that I needed, to be honest. And his death, obviously, which I write about in Sadness, was the shaking I needed, too. And I didn't get right to it. It's just like she cracked open something in my mind. And because I had always said, I don't have a book in me. I don't have a book in me. I don't have a book in me. And she was like, what are you talking about? OK. But she sort of lodged. She cracked open a door that I wasn't willing to even consider or open or walk through for a few more years. But it was a really, I knew it was there. And I knew at some point I needed to open it. And I didn't, in her point to me, it was like, how many more of the, how many more books are you going to collaborate on before you recognize that this is lunacy? And so I knew that I wanted, that I wouldn't write a book until it felt like I was, maybe this is, well, this is the problem. I'm like, this is a gross metaphor. And then I'm like, this isn't gross at all. I knew that all that cultural conditioning, I knew I needed to feel like really pregnant. And this book, the minute I honestly was like, I need to address this part of my life and I need, and part of it. Part of addressing this part of my life is letting myself be the thing and not, no longer only being in service to other people's ideas. I still love that. There's no shame on that. I still love that. But the minute I sort of recognized that whatever, however I was outsourcing all of my security to other people, the way that I wasn't owning that part of my journey, the minute that I really said, okay, I'm in, 
I'm game. I know I need to do this. I need to address this instinct in myself to hide. That's probably very closely timed to the arrival of this book in me. And mm-hmm. and it felt not only worthy of spending what will probably be, you know, five years of my life, because these, you know, you, these books are not, it's not a small thing to do this and enter into this sort of engagement if you're really going to honor the idea and honor your participation in it. But yeah, in a way, this book is, has been everything. And it's been funny because I've had this instinct also with, which my friends Richard Christensen and, and Scott Sternberg have been like watching me very carefully for of move of being like, well, I need to figure out what I'm going to do next. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're like, no, 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 stop. You're, you're still engaging in the same cycle of busyness that you have written about. Mm-hmm. And part mm-hmm. of it is like, let this book, you got to let this book live in you mm-hmm. and allow it to sort of be your life. As scary as it is for any of us to sort of put ourselves fully into anything, that's been this book for me. Mm-hmm. And that's scary because I would much rather minimize it and bury, not bury it, but move on, you know, find the next thing, all of these right, instincts. Right. Well, it's more comfortable right? To like put the next thing on the to-do list so that you can be like, I'm separating myself from attachment to the thing I just finished. I've got these next things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like just from watching it, it feels to me that you, you had all these, all this input, you know, you were interviewing these like amazing thought leaders. And I always say at least like, one of my like the thing I love most about you and like one of the one of the best things you've brought to my life is a truly democratic acceptance mm. of everyone's ideas. And like I have a tendency to be like, that's so woo woo blah. Or like that I'm never gonna do, you know, I sort of put people in categories and decide which categories like apply to me. And you have a willingness to like, yes, I'll try that. I mean, even I made my husband watch the video of you with the cockroach on your face from your <laughs> birthday party. Because like this willingness to like, I'll try it. Sure, I'll try it. And so anyway, I think you had lived for 10 years interviewing everyone, really being at the forefront of like, yeah, I'll try it. Like this type of therapy, this spiritual medium, Brian Stevenson, everybody has ideas to offer. I'm going to put them in the stew that is inside of me. And I think you got to a place in your life where you had it all churning and it wasn't making life more comfortable. Like if anything, Mm -hmm. you got to a point where all of these ideas were like bubbling up and making your actual lived experience uncomfortable. Yes. I think that's when what you describe as being really pregnant. I think that's when the, the book was ready to emerge, right? Yes. Because then it was like, okay, I've got these ideas. I can feel them under the surface and I can feel that the way I'm living right now is not comfortable. I want to, and, and, and comfort is not the goal, but it's like, it's, I, I don't have to live in this pain. Yes, right? it's going to break me. Yeah. Yes. And the, a desire to take a minute not even a minute, years to organize mm-hmm. and to think about sort of like, what is this paradigm? What is happening? And 
to in that way identify in a in a the way that it's been brilliantly elucidated and clarified for us what systemic racism looks like. It doesn't have to sort of be something that you consciously agree to or abide by willingly or with any awareness, but this is how it's baked in and then culturally individually reinforced in our lives. I knew too that that had to be there had to be a version of that for misogyny that all of these sort of constructs these these force fields that we can feel but don't feel like we're necessarily choosing or subscribing to but are present I knew I knew too that like that was a calling that I needed to figure out the contours of this and identify how it lives in our lives without I haven't signed up I did not choose this. I did not hit subscribe, but it is, it is alive in me and I think in, alive in all of us. So, okay. So, so the book is going to come out you yeah. know, on Tuesday. What, what is your hope for how it lives in the world? Like what, what is your hope for, for how it enters readers, yeah. readers experiences? Yeah. I mean, you know so much. I mean, I know somewhat just from having so many writer friends and loving authors and interviewing them for, I don't know, 10 years now, more than that, that the trajectory of books and how they live in the world is so different. I, and you know, and some books sort of come out of the gate really hot and then stay that way. You know, obviously you lived untamed or some sort of come out hot and die and some just sell and burn over time. And I guess my hope, my greatest hope is to get enough momentum out of the gate that the book really like feels a pulse and has a quickening. And then my greatest dream is not to sort of go blasting out like a fire hose, but for it to spread from women to women primarily, although I really think men will like this book and would benefit from reading it as well. It's a whole nother conversation, but I would be very happy if women read this book, tell their friends, book club it. It's very much, and it's funny, I think so much of my speed in a way and wanting to like write the book and work on it intensively with you and probably some of that resentment, despair was... This is work that should be done with other women. It's personal, yes, but it's also like I really wanted to talk about these things with you. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted a partner in processing. And that's what's been so fun is doing podcast interviews for this book, speaking to groups of women, watching how it comes alive and other people, and then what's possible when you actually start saying things that have been too scary to say, like, oh, the reason I don't, I think I don't like that other mom at drop-off is not because she's the worst. It's because she is, to me, like, seems to be an incredibly present mother. Her kids are really kind. Her kids are really good citizens and students. She is also, you know, 
the CEO of a company, whatever it is, but starting to actually talk about it is so relieving and beautiful. And it's sort of the breaking of a curse because I think what also happens to women in in that cycle that I was just talking about where we criticize each other for having not recognizing our own envy, our own wanting and what it is that that woman is doing that's pushing on a dream we have for ourselves is that then when we sit in a clutch at coffee and we condemn someone or judge someone, we feel really bad. It feels so gross. It feels awful. And so we're sort of just like in this horrible, vicious, vicious cycle where we're confirming our own badness and we're, you know, staying sort of enmeshed in, in with this like quest for goodness. I don't know. I, I think that that's as we start interrupting those cycles, I think that it can bring great relief. And I do think it's personal work, but it is community work, hopefully. That is my dream, is that the book sort of infiltrates the lives of women in positive and powerful ways and just lives being passed from friend to friend, mother to daughter, daughter to mother, and that it just has has a life in that way. What's yeah. your dream for the book, Wit? I have my, my, you know, I feel like we've had some really incredible conversations about ideas in the book. And I've had moments where I've like really learned about a colleague or like come to just really love a colleague in a way mm -hmm. that I hadn't been able to see or access before getting to talk to them about this book. Um, mm. So, So, you know, my hope is that like, readers get to have that shared experience. I, I mean, I think you're so right that, you know, I described that like voice in my head that you helped me to realize is not me. It's like imposed upon me. And that voice in my head feels shitty. Like it, I don't like it. And, and there is this relief that comes when you can see like how to separate yourself from that you know, rule dictating voice. And that, that relief, like, as you just described, like, it feels good. And it feels really good to like, get to like, share that with someone or to see mm -hmm. someone also experience it. And so that that would be my hope. You, I mean, yes, of course, I wanted to sell and sell. And I want us to make lots of money and all those things that I'm supposed to do, because I'm like, you know, a cog in a large publishing corporation wheel. But what motivates me every day is this idea that like you know you wrote this book alone in a room and a reader is probably going to read it alone in a room but the experience around this book for me has been shared with all of these people on my team and I hope that for readers it is shared with the other people in their lives too mm -hmm. um, and then it starts to feel you know like a, a light that's passed or something so yeah yeah. And I think, too, by, you know, by offering a framework, I hope that that becomes sort of an easy way in a, in a even if people don't necessarily relate to exactly the evidence I use or my own story, but that the framework lives and that mm -hmm. we can all use it as sort of a quick reference guide of, oh, oh, right, I am policing my eating, I'm policing my body because of the way that we're culturally conditioned to equate thinness 
with virtuosity and goodness or whatever, you know, whatever it may be. Or even, I mean, like I have like walked into negotiations now where I've been like, I don't need to be afraid to negotiate this. It's okay if they think I'm asking for a lot, like I'm allowed to ask for that, but I had Mm -hmm. to, you know, you helped me to identify greed Mm -hmm. and like unpack why I have been conditioned to be so afraid of appearing that way. And then to sort of move past it and see what might come if I like accept or lean in to seeing it as like a place of power. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's what I think is also really important to the book is that I didn't, I didn't want to write sort of a, like, let's go wild. Let's all be, you know, the antidote to this is to sort of be greedy and gluttonous. And I mean, sure, the point, the point of the book, though, isn't that it's actually, we each have to examine our own relationships with each of these sins. So for you, for greed is a big one for me. And this feeling of like, I already have a lot. Therefore, it's very gross, base, awful for me to even contemplate wanting more, right? Greed is a really tricky one. But but the point of the book is like, how do you actually use these human basic instincts, desires, appetites, wants as a way to get closer to yourself, as a way to actually honor what you want and to not, it's not about sort of flinging around to these extremes. It's about balance. It's about honesty. It's about, you know, a complete and full expression of who we are. And so, yeah, it's interesting because like part of the antidote isn't just like, go be lustful, right? It's much more. Eat all the pizza. Eat all the pizza. Eat all sleep all day. Yeah. <laughs> But I think that that's like one of the tri- one of our cultural instincts is to sort of like then go to the other binary or or like live in those extremes. But the real work is in the middle. There's no relief in the extremes. There's no relief in denial, self-denial, and there's no relief in sort of, I don't know, almost disembodiment or almost like, I don't know. Pure indulgence pure indulgence yeah it's that that spectrum or that really understanding what that means for you so that you can clearly go after it what a joy to share the brilliant wit frick with you she is an incredible editor who i knew by way of the acknowledgments long before I actually knew her. My friend Joel Stein, who's hilarious, he used to write that column for the for Time magazine. He jokes that the only people who read the acknowledgments are those who are expecting to be thanked. But I love the acknowledgments. I feel like they are always so telling and illuminating about the people who have shaped and informed an author's life. And the way that gratitude is expressed is always a little bit of extra insight into how someone moves through the world. So I had seen Witt's name for years and years and years. She has edited so many luminaries, so many people I respect. And now she leads Dial Press, 
which is a storied imprint, and she has been breathing so much life into it these past few years. It's part of Random House. She leads quite a team of editors, and I am so grateful to be among the company that I'm with, a certain kind of sisterhood. She is Glennon Doyle's editor and has been since the beginning of Glennon's book life. And Melissa Urban, Chelsea Handler, Laurelyn Jackson, Holly Whitaker, and on and on. That's sort of Tara Schuster is on Dial Press. That's the Gina Rosero. I could just keep going. Those are just people who write nonfiction too. Anne Napolitano on fiction. So Allegra Goodman. All right, I'll stop now. But <laughs> I really, and you all who are listening and are listening this far know me. I wanted to turn the tables on wit and talk to her about the editorial process because I am, as, as much as I am an editor in my life, I'm not an editor in the same way. I sort of feel like I was the stone and Wit was Michelangelo and it was within me, but she had to help chisel it out of me. And this book very much feels co-creative. She is all over it. It is in the place that it's in because of Wit and her brilliance, sort of both leading me by the nose and also showing me what was possible. I really had to get closer to myself and I really didn't want to, really didn't want to, guys. So Wit is in this book and I wanted her, I knew I wanted her to be its editor even as I was writing the proposal for all of those reasons I said that she felt like she could really do this for me, that between us, we could make this book land in the bodies and minds of women and that she would prevent me from spinning out into abstraction and theory and all of the stuff that I love so much. It's so much more fun to be clinical. So I am deeply grateful to Wit. I also had a big fear and anxiety that a book that I would write would be good enough. I'm a very clean writer. I'm fast. And that, honestly, I think a lot of editors would have accepted my first draft and just taken that through to publication. And so I am really grateful to her that she didn't and that she really, really pushed me to refine and refine and clarify. So I'm glad you got to hear from her. And someday she'll come back and let me interview her about editing distilling ideas, finding the nut, all of that, because I think we could all benefit from being a little bit more of an editor in our own lives. All right. Thank you for listening to this very special episode. I will see you next week. And, oh man, I would be remiss. Please, please, if you haven't ordered On Our Best Behavior please pre-order it now. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack newsletter. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive on Sundays. 
or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen. Meanwhile, if you haven't already, please pre-order my book coming May 23rd. It's called On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good. And it's an exploration of the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available for now, for free, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.